0: SEEK would like to start this episode by acknowledging Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and their rich culture, and pay respect to their elders past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. SEEK recorded this episode from Wurundjeri Woi Warung Country. of Australian organisations told SEEK they want to focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community engagement and recruitment in 2021. So how can organisations most effectively make positive change?
1: We've always got to be vigilant and keep trying and keep working towards those goals of justice and equality. We spoke to Tanya Hosh, 2021 Australian
0: of the Year and AFL Executive General Manager of Inclusion and Social Policy. Tanya spoke with us about how business leaders can respectfully acknowledge the past while providing equitable opportunity to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Tanya generously shares with us her own experiences, as well as offering valuable advice to help leaders make meaningful progress from whatever step they're at now. You've had a really admirable career, founded an advocacy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples, some really significant career achievements. You're the first Indigenous person and second woman appointed the AFL executive. You've held leadership roles in sports, the arts, culture, social justice and public policy, just to name a few of your achievements. But I'm wondering, what would you say is the highlight of your career so far?
1: (laughs) Um, Look, I don't know. I guess the first thing I want to say is that Anything I've achieved has only been because of the people before me and the people alongside me, when you do the kind of work that I do, it's always a, a huge number of people and supporters and allies who are hand in hand. There was a moment in 2019 where um, the AFL and the 18 clubs joined together to offer Adam Goods a substantial apology for what he went through before he left the game we unveiled the first ever aboriginal afl statue outside Optus stadium in perth of nikki winmar in that iconic pose um, captured by wayne um, ludby lifting his jumper and and pointing to his his skin and uh, it was also the week that we announced uh, the first appointment of an aboriginal person peter matera to the afl tribunal and A lot of people at the unveiling of the statue said to me, Wow, you've had an amazing month. And I said, Yeah. And that month took two and a half years. If I have to think of a career highlight that encapsulates that, is the culmination of all of the work that goes on behind the scenes to get to the point where people are committed and ready to take next steps and to progress the agenda that you're setting. Because particularly for me at the AFL, I don't have an operational job. Yep. So for any success I have is because other people are willing to do it.
0: Those examples that you just mentioned there, which you know was an incredible month and something that I think every AFL fan remembers really fondly,
1: are they the types of things that drives and ignites your passion? I think change Um, from a young age, I experienced racism myself. I still can vividly remember what that felt like. And I think that was where the fire started inside of me. Just couldn't tolerate the injustice of that. And anything that I do, hopefully it is all about contributing to challenging the beliefs of people who think that racism, sexism, homophobia or any form of vilification are okay. You know, it's not like you, you wake up one day knowing how to do those things, but I've kept my eyes open and I've listened closely to the leaders who've invested in me and the leaders I've watched from afar. And I think it all starts somewhere. And, and the whole point is you've got to be willing to turn up and have a crack. You know, it was Nelson Mandela that said everything seems impossible until it is done. That's why we've always got to be vigilant and keep trying and keep working towards those goals of justice and equality. At what
0: stage did you decide that tackling this and speaking up and advocacy was going to be the career path or or indeed the the life choice that was right for you?
1: I can remember as an 18-year-old taking my dog for a walk. And I remember walking down the street, I was in my first job at that point, and um, I'd gone straight from high school into a state government traineeship in in South Australia. I was struggling with some racism in the workplace, really didn't know how to handle that, didn't feel safe to report it, Um, was really quite scared. It was my first job. I was worried about the consequences of raising it. And I remember this thought came into my mind that it's more important to do what's right than it is to be popular. Yeah. As I say, Hamish, I've been making myself unpopular ever since. (laughs) And But I, I do remember that moment and I think that's when I made the decision that if I can get paid doing things that I would do for free, then how lucky am I? And that inner courage...
0: To speak up, Tanya, what was the process, I guess, in in going from experiencing racism and then having the courage to speak
1: up and, as you say, becoming unpopular in some people's eyes for having that viewpoint? Again, it's watching other examples. It's, I guess, seeking out material that demonstrated other Indigenous leaders across the country who were fighting much bigger fights than me and just absorbing that and then being introduced to those people over time do you remember that time in life where we were always at conferences? There were so many conferences yeah, taking did. place. Um, <laughs> I made a career out of them, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, you know, I can remember in my 30s in particular, there was I was always going to conferences and that's where I started to be introduced to those leaders that I'd admired from afar mm. and started to seek them out as mentors. And they you know, to my pleasant surprise, were happy to take me under their wing and take me into meetings and rooms that I could only dream of being in where I learned a lot. And at that same time, I was developing really core relationships with my peers who were interested in the same things as me. We all had a similar passion for for rights and justice. Mm. We all had our own experience of racism. We all wanted to help make a difference. And so, You know, to this day, those peers are still a really, really important part of what I consider an accountability mechanism. I feel like I'm accountable to those people, which is important. Those mentors are still on the end of the phone when I need them. They're still there for advice. I think just turning up and, and making myself available to hear and learn from others is what really helps you to find that inner strength, to find that courage and also to help you recover when it hasn't gone so well. Yeah, and, sure. And when you know, you do get those big disappointments or you know, the result that you were hoping for or were carefully working towards hasn't quite turned out and you've experienced even more discrimination as a result.
0: That's an interesting phrase you had there, being accountable to your mentors. What does that look like still?
1: Yeah, my mentors and my peers, I think yeah. if you invest in someone um, and someone's investing in you, then it's important to let them know how that investment is turning out. And yeah. it means that you can create a reciprocal relationship. And I think that the research shows that mentor mentoring is uh, most successful when it, there is a reciprocation in that relationship. And so I think it matters to me what my peers and mentors think of how I perform. Yeah. I really care whether they feel like I've done my best. And as I've said to other people that I've mentored and, and peers of mine who are doing really challenging work, I say to them sometimes, even if you don't come away with the outcome you went in for,
0: yeah.
1: I always know that you would have done your absolute best. I know that that is reassuring sometimes because sometimes we feel like we're letting our communities down when we can't quite deliver the outcome that we've gone in seeking. And that's a big part of the cultural load that people talk about, people from, you know, who do work where their culture and their cultural identity is on the line and needing to be demonstrated and needing to be deployed um, on a regular basis as they uh, do their work. Mm. That reassurance that people are believing in you and not seeing you as the person at fault because the outcome hasn't been able to be achieved is really, really important.
0: Does that help you as well sort of silence some of that outside noise that isn't terribly you know, relevant or perhaps even helpful to the work that you're doing, those opinions that you really value and, and matter to you?
1: It does. Um, yeah. You do have to remind yourself that what you're doing counts that you are fighting the good fight. Yeah. There are days where you feel like, why am I doing this? There's got to be easier ways to earn a living. There's got to be an easier way to to move through the world because there's a lot of disappointment in yeah. work like this, that great month or week that took two and a half years. half years—that's you know That was a lot of heavy lifting and you have to just keep believing. And I think when you do feel that sense of disbelief, and let's face it, I think we all do from time to time, Uh, no matter what it is that we're passionate about or trying to achieve in life, you do have to, you know, turn your back on those negative voices that tell you you're not good enough. And I think for Indigenous Australians in particular, you know, growing up in this country where you will have been told countless times that Mm. you're not good enough, Mm. um, that you don't really quite belong, or if you do, you need to do it on someone else's terms, um, that does have an impact and it's very easy to fall into the traps that that can set, particularly when you're working outside an environment that is uh, 100% of the time culturally safe. You're a change
0: maker, and you've built a legacy of equitable practices, you know, to really provide a more inclusive and fair environment for all Australians. Where do you think leaders of organisations can start to respectfully acknowledge the past and also providing equal opportunity to First Nations Australians?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Hamish, that's a huge question. I think there's a lot of things you can do it's really, really important to seek out the stories of First Australians for starters and understanding our history. I think that's critical. And there's countless books, films, documentaries, Mm. songs, poetry, theatre, dance, comedy even that tells those stories. Yeah, I'm often surprised at how little people have actually absorbed that, but they're very quick to want to make sure that their organisation has a reconciliation action plan. I think there's a lot of will out there to to do this work well. Uh, One of the things I also think from an employment perspective, it's been really interesting for me to go into the role at the AFL at a very senior level, having no prior experience in the industry other than as a spectator and going in there at at a senior level having done that and been given that opportunity has helped a lot because I think that a lot of organisations are keen to say, okay, let's make sure we employ First Australians in our organisation, which is great. But all too Mm. often, they open up a lot of lower grade positions And then a kind of surprise that the result isn't more long-standing and and more sustainable and you do see quite a high turnover at that level. One of the learnings for me coming into the AFL at a senior level is that what it has signalled to other Indigenous people in the business or in the sector is, hey, there's an Indigenous person at the senior levels of decision-making now. And there's someone there who's going to understand my perspective. And I think that there's a lot to be said for really addressing the governance level. So there's one thing to have employment, but I really struggle with companies that want to run an Indigenous program, but never consider having an Indigenous person on their board, having an Indigenous person on their executive. There are so many qualified First Nations peoples with great governance credentials, with a lot of great experience to offer, and yet quite often when people are looking at employment opportunities, they're not pitching them at all of the levels that are possible. They're keeping them sort of at that mid to lower range, and I think Mm. that's a huge mistake, and it doesn't enable pathways to be open, and the pathways it does open are limited. Is that
0: organisations perhaps having a stereotype of of the skill set and the ability, or...? not expanding their talent pipelines far enough? Do you have an opinion on, on why they're not leveraging that great talent for some of those governance and higher higher executive roles?
1: Look, I think the two examples you gave there would both be true and mm. I think it's probably not thinking enough about it, probably nervousness of about failing, Hmm. And, you know, certainly when you go into an organisation at a senior level, if you're an Indigenous person, then I think that you do perhaps feel an extra bit of pressure, as do the people that employed you, because everyone wants it to be a success. And people may judge through a stereotype lens if it's not a success in ways that you don't if it's a non-indigenous person who hasn't succeeded yeah. in in a promotional opportunity. And I think we realise that that sort of response will be in play whether we want to talk about it and identify it or not. But quite often, I think there is a bit of a reluctance to take what is considered a greater risk that might send things backwards. Yeah. And what I would say to that is. It doesn't need to be the risk you think it is in the first place. You just need to put the right things in place and support the person appropriately. And also be prepared to make sure that the environment you're bringing people into is strong. I was in a a meeting this morning where we were talking about the governance of an organisation and talking about how important the diversity in the decision making was. And I agree with that. But if that diversity that's around the table doesn't feel safe to bring their contribution forward, then it's just window dressing. The onus shouldn't just be on the person who brings a new perspective to the table. Everyone around that table has to be prepared to support that Mm. perspective to get equal weight around the table and I think there should be a lot more reflection about the work that the majority demographic has to do to make sure that the inclusive hire works.
0: What ideas or skills do you have and methods perhaps for leaders to actually start to get
1: the message out
0: there into their own organisations but also more broadly perhaps into the industry verticals that they operate in?
1: Yeah, look, one of the things that I saw more leaders do or that I've always, you know, wished more leaders would do for me, actually, as well as others, is I think about some of the rooms that some of our leaders and business leaders get to occupy, some of the meetings they get to go to, some of the, the gatherings they get to go to, whether they be social or formal. Why don't you take your Indigenous staff members with you? Mm. Is there is there an opportunity where you can be introducing the Indigenous staff to some of your networks? Are you sharing your networks with Indigenous people? Are you proudly promoting your Indigenous workforce members when you get those opportunities? Are there people that you can see have got enormous potential for your business going forward that you can promote and just get on the front foot in terms of making sure that you signal to other people that here's some talent that I really want everyone to know about. I think it's something that certainly being a member of Chief Executive Women, um, one of the great things about being part of that network is the amazing women I get to meet through the events that they hold and the opportunities that they create. It'd be great to see a lot more um, male and female leaders really embrace the Indigenous talent around them, whether it be staff member or someone mm-hmm. they mentor or someone they know, and introducing them into those rooms that aren't as readily available to us.
0: Just some of the you know, examples or common traits of successful initiatives and approaches that you've seen that have created progress and made a, a tangible difference to the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait peoples uh, in the workplace.
1: Well, look, I think, you know, a lot of organisations have been able to use reconciliation action plans to great benefit because it has increased the basic understanding and education of the workforce. I think really looking to have Indigenous people in senior positions makes a huge amount of difference because of what it signals to people. I think making sure that you have Indigenous people represented on your selection panels and yep. not just for Indigenous roles or where you might have Indigenous applicants but across the board. It was said to me by a colleague once many, many years ago that if this organisation that we worked in had Black fillers on the interview panels, half the people that work here wouldn't ever get through the door. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that <laughs> advice because I think uh, that person made a very good point that there are people who will be on their best behaviour when they think someone's watching. That's not the same as having the right values set or the belief systems that really support and encourage the inclusion of First Nations peoples in workplaces. And I think you don't have to be perfect, you don't have to know Mm -hmm. everything you to know about First Nations peoples, but you have to be, you know, have a starting perspective of respect. And if you have that then that means that you also have to be open to doing that self-reflection. That means that you're actually able to demonstrate the way that you value all of your colleagues and that includes Indigenous colleagues as well.
0: In Australian workplace culture, there seems to be a fear around approaching racism the wrong way or Mm. being labelled discriminatory and there's an observation as well that many leaders are now a bit hesitant to in fact do anything. Mm. You know, that actually inhibits them from entering into the discussion and contributing at a larger scale to change. So How can we encourage business leaders to overcome this hesitation? What advice do you have for business leaders?
1: I'd like to see more business leaders engage Indigenous people as mentors. I think that if that's an area where you are feeling a bit paralysed because you don't want to get it wrong and you're worried about the consequences, and I absolutely understand why, we live in an age of perpetual outrage. Someone gets something wrong and there's a pile-in and and no-one wants that sort of reputational damage. But that sense of paralysis of being afraid to try is something that I think we overcome on a whole range of other things that we're challenged by. And I think it's up to those individual leaders to consider, okay, what's really stopping me here? Do I need a safe point of reference? I've had a mentor for this. I've had a mentor for that. Maybe it's time to engage an Indigenous professional with cultural expertise and lived experience that can guide you through the decision making and considerations Mm. that you need to make. And again, if you have an Indigenous person around your board table, I'm sure they'd be a fantastic sounding board to support you as you navigate that. You wouldn't set up a board without governance experience, legal experience, finance experience. And if you're serious about having Indigenous people as part of your business, whether as staff or as clients, then uh, why are you not bringing that same degree of importance to the decision-making table that you would with any other attribute that you make sure you set up every single time? Indigenous contributions are possible everywhere. You know, it's up to us to make it a priority to bring that into our own organisations.
0: I personally think AFL will lead the way and have done for some time in a lot of this. That must make you at a personal level really proud.
1: Yeah, look, I'm really pleased at the progress. But, um, you know, at the same time, we still see problems. Um, mm. You know, I'm in the middle of dealing with one at the moment. What's important for us all to remember is, as Gil McLaughlin says, and I love this line of his, when it comes to dealing with racism, there's no finish line. Racism is pervasive. It's something that we've really got to be uh, vigilant about understanding. We've all got to do the self reflection. It's not simple as simple as just doing a cultural awareness training program or mm. having a reconciliation action plan or eating some bush tucker in NAIDOC week, you know, having some Aboriginal dancers come in when you launch your rap or any of that. It is actually about a life connection and series of relationships that are genuine, where you do have a a genuine, authentic, equal exchange, as well as, you know, making progress that, you know, I am proud of and it excites me um, because, you know, with every year I've been at the AFL, I've seen so much growth across the people in the organisation. One of my colleagues was saying to me the other week, as we plan Sir Doug Nicholls round every year, When we first started, a lot of people were looking to the Indigenous people in the room to come up with the ideas, but now everyone's bringing ideas to the table, everyone with their expertise, whether it be events management, whether it be digital activation, production, whatever it is, whether it be ticketing, everyone's feeling free to say, hey, I've got an idea, could we do this? Can we work with Indigenous people in this way? Can we bring Indigenous people into this element of what we're delivering? to me, says a lot about our progress because actually what it means is that everyone is feeling more confident. It is about being confident to say, I don't have all the answers and I might not know anything, but I do have an idea and can we share our ideas together? And that's where a lot of the cultural burden is lifted from Indigenous people and that's when you certainly do get the those relationships really moving in the right direction and you get the kind of collaboration that we all hope to see.
0: That level of confidence that people had contributing to Sir Doug Nicholls round, where perhaps they were hesitant in the early stages, is that a really good sign of an inclusive environment?
1: Yeah, I think it is. When I'm talking to people, I always try to say, look, it's okay to ask the questions that you have. It's okay to have ideas. Mm. You can't address a problem you don't talk about. And so I guess one of the things I've really tried to do through my leadership at the AFL is encourage people to be as open and honest with me as they can. Yeah. And I'm pretty open and honest. What you see is what you get. And yeah. hopefully that has helped to model some of that openness We're so fortunate because the product that we run and and regulate has displays of Indigenous excellence every single weekend. That means that there's live examples constantly of what Indigenous people are contributing to the game. Mm -hmm you know, there's a lot that happens naturally through the lens of sport that is not as easily achieved in other businesses. And so that is an asset that I think we have that not everybody has.
0: You've been really generous with your time. It's been a fascinating chat. What are you working on at the moment that you're really excited about, that you're really keen to get out the market.
1: In the last two years, we've done a review of our racial vilification policy. It's now called the peak rule, and there's a whole range of recommendations that underpin the changes to the policy. So taking a really proactive lens to, okay, we've got an instrument to deal with vilification, but what are we going to do to prevent it? And really excited to start putting that in place and start implementing that work, which looks at everything from working with cheer squads, umpires, broadcasters, clubs, officials, players, broader spectators. That's incredibly exciting work to me because, as I said before, you can't deal with a problem you don't talk about and Mm. there's way too much vilification. And as I've said to a lot of people this week, there's been a lot of focus on what's happened with Taylor Walker. But let's imagine how many others we don't know anything about that the media will never hear about that won't even be reported because the person who's been victimised doesn't even feel like there's any point reporting it. So I think the more that we can shine a light on these problems in society and sport somehow does often provide the lightning rod for attention on these things, means we've got an awesome set of responsibilities and I'm really excited to be part of a team that's really dedicated to, you know, progressing that agenda and being as proactive as we possibly can. Continued success to you, Tanya. Thanks so much for joining us on Talent Talks today. Thanks, Hamish. It was great to talk with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us for this remote episode. For more ideas and discussions on the world of work and all things recruitment and HR, stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Seek Talent Talks.